Hi, and welcome back to this week's episode of Mastering Agility, a podcast series with and for inspiring agilists, bringing you the best of the business. This podcast series is brought to you by agilitymasters.com, providing you with all the agile coaches and scrum masters you need. Make sure to go to the website to subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date with the latest information when it comes to this podcast. Every agile transformation can be incredibly hard and challenging. But what makes this so challenging? Merely adopting the latest agile tools and practices won't be enough to respond to this rapid market change that we need. You must first lay the groundwork by creating the right environment for these tools to work in order for your organization to thrive. Joining us today is Kareem Harbert, a world-leading business agility and leadership consultant and author of the upcoming book, the six enablers of business agility to be released June 1st to talk about this very specific topic. Kareem Harbin, how are you doing, man? I'm doing very well. Thanks, buddy. How are you today? Pretty decent. Thanks for asking. Hey, man, you've been writing the six enablers of business agility. Um, Why did you write this and why now? Good question. Um, so let me let me take you back to the start because it, it was never supposed to be a book, and indeed it wasn't to start with. That. And, and uh, I, I I became a scrum master in uh, kind of about two thousand eight nine, and and I love working with teams. But but sort of I did that for four or five years. What I found was most of the problems that teams encounter, of those problems are so far beyond the team that doing a retrospective with a bunch of developers and testers, you know. To, you're not going to get to those root causes and you're not going to fix them. And so I got increasingly frustrated with that. Um, and from about 2014, 15 onwards, I started working with sort of broader transformations, working with leaders to try to address some of those. But I mean, I hadn't formed a model yet. I just knew there was stuff in the way. Um, and so it actually evolved as a consulting framework you know, to help lead and organizations understand, hey, stop focusing just on processes and practices and start thinking about mindsets and leadership and culture and structures and all of these things we generally ignore. So it it evolved into a consulting framework, which then turned into a training course, um, which then by by sheer chance turned into a book. So it's it's had a, a long evolution of probably about seven or eight years. That must have been a cool process for you as well. Like, What's the benefit that you see for people working with it? The, the, the benefit is, and, and you know, most of a lot of my work, a little bit of consulting, most a lot of it's training now. It's that so many people think, you know, if we, if we just send our teams on a scrum class, right, everything's going to be fine, and it's, uh, we'll just start having you know, daily scrums, and then all of the problems are going to go away, and and the root causes don't get addressed. So for me, just helping people understand the size of the problem, just helping them understand that you know you you do have to change how you show up as a leader and how you behave and maybe change your leadership style you you do have to address the culture of the organization and 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 so many other things you know the governance and, and how you invest money and, and if you you know stuck on fixed business cases with with scope that can't change it's going to be really difficult to do these things that you're telling me you want to do so let's have a conversation about everything that's involved and then you can go in with your eyes open. You can say, nah, that's, that's, that's too big a messy change. I'm not doing that right now right? and save everyone the trouble. Or you can say, yes, I still want to do this, but at least you have a chance of succeeding because you're not going to miss everything. Right? And, and so 
For me, that's the main benefit is it's helping to communicate that message to people because there are so many people out there who still think that this is just about teams working at the team level and it's so much more than that. Um, and trying trying my best for the last few years to get that message across and uh, through through talks, through through courses, through consulting, and I think you know I can I can reach significantly more people with a with a book than I can with with any course that I give. So um, hopefully the message spreads uh, and that's really you know the, the benefit of people. I say avoid shallow transformations either do it properly or don't do it at all i think is the message now, something in your answer there was you need to change you absolutely need to change now if people are or, or organizations are starting this transformation there are two things connected to it a the engagement which we'll touch upon a little later but something that i see too is a burning platform the, the sense and really yeah. feeling a burning platform how do you communicate communicate or create this burning platform like what's the desire for organizations to change and what if they don't well firstly i'm i'm not generally in the business of selling this to people i do this when people want to do it and i think that, that that's the only way you can like i like i will happily raise awareness right there's a there's a couple of chapters in the book about why organizations might want to think about business agility why just doing efficiently what you do now is great for now but what about tomorrow when the world changes and it does change quickly uh, you know what happens when your business model gets disrupted are you well set to respond are you well set to adapt and to innovate because if you're not you know we, we can all list off the companies that were unable to respond and adapt and innovate right so you know even if it's going well for you right now it might not always but you know i can communicate that message all day long right but you know i i know that people don't decide they want to do this because they heard a keynote um, or because they went to a course and someone told them it was really important. I know you have to come to this conclusion for yourself. You have to realize, oh, wait a minute, we, we, are, we are an organization that is working um, um, as if we were in the 20th century and suddenly we're not. We really need to do something about this. And I think you can only really come to that burning platform yourself. Other people can help you and inspire you and plant some seeds uh, but you know, when people come to me, they're asking me to help them do it. They're not asking me to convince them to do it uh, because no one's going to be able to do that. Well, I, maybe they can, right? but I have not found over the years that I've been successful at convincing leaders to change their organization. I, I'm very good at helping them do it when they want to. Now, this agile thing has been there for quite a while now. Yeah. Why is it now more important than ever? We, if we go back to the reasons behind it, right? We, we, we've just had the 20th anniversary of, of, of the manifesto for agile software development. I, I know that Scrum and XP and some of these approaches predate that by, by a few years. The problem that they were trying to solve is that we, we are largely treating this work as if we can predict it up front, as if um, somehow what customers want is knowable in advance, as if things aren't going to change um, and as if we can just write a set of features by talking to people and then execute against that. And, and we know that it didn't work well, right? Those, those stage gate approaches didn't work well in arenas of high uncertainty and complexity, right? Um, or VUCA is the term that a lot of people use now. Um, that's only increased in the last 20 years, right? That, that, the world has not got more stable. The world has not got less complex. So if, if anything's gone the other way significantly, and we're seeing that right now when we were all in the midst of a pandemic, hopefully coming out the other side, but you, you never know. Um, and organizations have had to 
respond and they've had to adapt and they've had to exhibit agility. And, and you've actually seen more agility in the last year than probably in the five years before that because they really felt that burning platform. But it took something like this um, for that to happen. And so you know, I, I think you know, it's, it, it hasn't caught on, um, but it's more important now than it's ever been. And um, I think as we go forward, it will get even more important still because the pace of change is not going to slow. It's going to increase even more, in which case this becomes even more of an imperative and more and more people realize that now. Somewhere in your book, you mentioned this quote about Satya Nadala from Microsoft, who also mentioned the absolute need for business agility. And one of the, one of the things that he mentions is the need for nimbleness. Yeah. Now, there is a big difference. Nimbleness is not the first thing that comes to mind when I think about Microsoft. Do you feel that the large monolithic organizations like Microsoft or something else um, have a very big challenge or would it be easy to incorporate business agility in an organization like that? Now they have a big challenge, but 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 Satya Nadella has done a great job in reinventing the culture of Microsoft, and they are significantly better than they were five years ago. Um, and I imagine there's still a way to go, but um, yeah, they you know, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for an organization that size, but also you've got the resources to be able to do these things as well. But you know, Amazon's a pretty big company too, uh, and and Amazon is constantly innovating, constantly reinventing itself with new business models. I mean, you know, AWS is, is a huge business in its own right, right? It does, you know, tens of billions of dollars in revenue each year, right? And, and that was not its core business. It wasn't even close to its core business. And not to mention all the Amazon Digital and the Kindle and the Alexa. And they, because they, they have a mindset of, they have a day one mentality. They have, you know, yes, we have a great business model, However, we still need to create new ones, right? And, and that's that ability to sustain what you have and invent for tomorrow is, uh, you know, we call that being ambidextrous. Amazon has it in, in, in spades, as do some others. Microsoft, less so, but it's, it's, it's getting back in the game under Satya Nadella. And, but I think for lots of organizations, it takes that strong leader to drive it through. And a lot of these organizations just don't have that vision right now, in which case that's, that's why they're struggling, certainly the bigger ones for sure. What do you feel then with, for instance, Apple and Netflix, uh, Google, what's their driving power? What makes it, makes them different from other organizations like, like, like Nokia or, uh, blockbusters? They, they, it's, it's the mentality of the leader in the culture. I mean, Netflix will continuously reinvent itself, right? It starts off as a, as an online DVD, uh, platform where you, you'd send stuff back in the post and then, um, it's, it's evolved to where it is now. And, and then it, even that wasn't enough. It started creating its own content, right? It's wherever we are now, we can always do something new. And I think if you have that mentality of, I always need to keep moving. I always need to keep improving, right? And you, you know, when Steve Jobs was at Apple in particular, they weren't happy with creating industry-changing innovations. They then had to create the next one. And some of those next ones killed off the previous one, but that was okay, right? But it's that mentality of, shall I create something amazing for my customer or shall we just get a little bit better at what we do now? And, and if you think of so many organizations, right, they, they focused on, Let's just be a little bit better at what we do now, which can work really well until it doesn't. Um, but the, the problem is this. Once you realize, oh, wow, our business model is going away. You know, you talked about Nokia. You talked about, block, we can talk about Blockbuster and Kodak, whoever it is. 
once you realize that business model is going away and some new technology or new organization has disrupted you, you then have a choice. Like we, we can reinvent ourselves, but it's, it's more than a choice because are we able to? Are we structured for it? Are we designed for it? Do we have the capability for it? And quite often the answer is no. We don't know how to do that uh, because everything we are is saying business as usual and nothing about us says innovation. And so if you just try and do it with your current structures and culture and leadership and governance models, that it fails. And then, and then you know, these aren't badly run companies, but they're, they're just not designed for innovation. And so if you're not set up for it up front, you're going to really struggle. And I think that's the big challenge for them. What do you feel makes it so super hard to to really innovate and to position themselves from moving from their massive cash cow with uh, a low margin of of innovation to something completely different with higher risk and with more innovation and, and therefore better margins? Mm. Well, when you're designed for one thing and you try and do something else, it's a problem, right? So uh, the analogy I sometimes use is um, if you're on an oil tanker, right? designed to go efficiently in, in a straight line. And suddenly somebody tells you, you've got to weave in and out of, of some um, and some markers, right? It just, I don't care how hard you try, you're still on an oil tanker. Right? Um, whereas if you're on a flotilla of speedboats, you can zoom in and out, right? Probably not going to be particularly efficient at going in a straight line. And so these companies that are oil tankers try to weave in and out and remain oil tankers. Um, and what they don't realize is they are built from the ground up for the status quo, for business as usual. They are not built for innovation. And when they try and do it, they, they, they try to do it, but they don't reinvent their team structures. They're still silo. They don't reinvent their governance policies to allow experimentation and, and incremental metered funding. And they don't reinvent their HR policies and their leadership. And all of these other things that say, hey, this creates the environment for you to be able to do it. If you just try and do it in your current structure, it's not going to work because that's not what it's designed for. And so they don't realize there's that extra element, right? And that's the first part. And the second part is so many just don't know how to do it because if, you know, traditional MBAs and, and leadership training is all about, well, it's master of business administration, right? It's administering a current business. It's not creating a new one. It's not innovation entrepreneurship. And so you don't learn as much of that stuff, uh, and so the leaders just don't have the capability and it's and those two things together make it really hard. How does HR, for instance, come to play with that? You you tapped uh, on it a little bit, but how does HR come to play in an agile transformation? As as one of the absolutely vital elements, and let, let me put it this way, right? You, you've probably all seen the figures um, uh, or heard the figures of, of levels of engagement. Right? 15% of people engaged globally as per the, the Gallup um, State of the Global Workplace Report. Um, 67% of people not engaged and then 18% of people actively disengaged, right? Well, engagement, employee engagement is a key leading indicator of business success. Um, and if you're saying, you know, we want people running experiments, innovating, you can't have people who are used to just turning up and being compliant and being told what to do and who are disengaged and who don't care. You have to have uh, people taking their initiative, being creative, being passionate about what they're doing. But yeah, HR policies either create the environment for that passion, that innovation, or they destroy it, right? And they just get people who are turning up to, for compliance, for conformance, for obedience, just following the rules. And, and there are so many parts of HR. I mean, you can talk about policies that enable people, that play to autonomy, mastery, and purpose, or, or you can just destroy people's intrinsic motivation and creativity. And, and HR plays such an important part in 
either creating or destroying that environment. But if you don't have it, and a lot of these big traditional organizations, their HR policies sort of date back to the Industrial Revolution. Um, let me give you a quick example. It, it, many organizations have individual incentives and individual productivity goals. Right? And yet we have a team sport that is innovation, whether it's design thinking or scrum or so many other things, where we need to be a team player. And actually what we should be looking at is team-based incentives to incentivize what's right for the team, not what's right for the individual or, or at least aligning them. Right? But if we don't do those things, you, you're, you've got this mismatch and then everything else you try and do is just not going to work. Right? And so uh, it's, it's one of the pieces of the puzzle as is governance, as are so many others. But you know, if you ignore any of these things, it's, it's like a, a key piece of the puzzle is missing. Right? And, and let's face it, the most important part of any organization is its people. And, and if you're, people, you're not getting the most out of people, you probably won't be particularly effective at anything right? um, other than the kind, of the kind of boring business as usual stuff that you can just use a, an algorithm to and you probably outsourced anyway, right? So, I mean, this is key and it's, it's so often left behind and there are some great people um, flying the flag for HR, but still not enough people getting that message. Do you feel the, the term... HR in itself, human resources, is still a valid one within an, an, an environment and, and just the culture that we create these days that are moving away from treating people like resources while we're still upholding a term like human resources. Yeah, I don't love the term. And actually, when I created the model initially, I, I had HR and then I changed it to people and engagement brackets HR and then I just lost the brackets. Right. So, so I, didn't, I didn't use the term. However, it's a term that is understood and in existence. Right? So how, whatever we call it, and my preference would be to not call it that, but it's quite hard when it's called that in every organization. We need to help them understand this is the area that needs, one of the areas that needs to be addressed. Right? And, and right now you're calling it HR. Whatever you call it going forward, it's about how do we get the best out of people? Right? And, and it, it's about people. So, so yeah, human resources, right? It, it's it's uh, It's very dehumanizing and it's it's just, it isn't helpful. Um, but also sometimes you have to meet people where they are. So I avoid the term, but you know, it's out there. And so um, if we carry on using the term, but actually reinvent the whole process around it, I think that's okay. <laughs> but if we just reinvent the term and carry on doing what we're doing, that's definitely not okay. This ties perfectly back to one of the episodes that I recorded with Gunther van Heijen, who mentions the exact thing like you did. Now you mentioned passion, passionate people that you want to have in your organization. Um, to me, that also means that people need to understand what their passion is, where the energy comes from. You seem to be very passionate about this specific topic and about business, business agility in general. Where does your passion come from? And when did you find out like, this is the thing that drives me forward? Yeah, that's a great question. I am passionate, and that is, yeah, it comes across because I, I, I you know, I believe in this stuff, right? and, and sometimes I can, um, I can talk about it maybe longer than I should. But uh, um, yeah, I, I mean, I was, a, I was an engineer, I was a developer, I enjoyed that, but I wasn't passionate about it. I was a project manager, I enjoyed it, I wasn't passionate about it. I became a scrum master, I instantly loved it, right? And you just, I just knew that I wanted to pursue this, this line, and I became a scrum master. And you know, you're passionate about it when you give your discretionary effort, right? When I can go on holiday and I'll take a book about business agility or about innovation or about HR uh, or about leadership. When you enjoy doing what you're doing, where you actually care about having an impact. And, and I do have, I do care about having an impact for two reasons. One, 
because I think organizations are wasting human potential. They can be more effective. They can deliver more value to their customers. But but B, you know, I've got two little girls. I don't want them going to work in some of the soul-destroying organizations I've worked in over the last sort of 19, 20 years, right, where it's just a grim existence for a lot of people. And there's no reason why any organization should be like that, right? You should go in, uh, um, as my wife would say, you should go in skipping to work on a Monday morning. Now, I don't do too much skipping, but I know what she means, right? Uh, you should go in looking forward to what you're going to achieve and what you're going to contribute every single day, or at least most of the days, right? Uh, so, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see that on a personal level, but also I'd just love to see organizations be more effective and deliver more value to their customers. And and, and when you find something, an area where you feel you can contribute to that, right? That's like, how can you not be passionate about that? I fully agree with you, man. Um, especially looking at our the way that we have set up our schools and and just yeah. our, our college system. It's so focused on getting high grades, Get, needing to get this high-paying job with a, with a lot of, of um, status and these kind of things. Yeah. How do you feel about this? What's the, I mean, the burnout burnout rates are sky high. They are. We 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 are. We're not preparing people for for the workplace in it. Like I'm not an education expert, but I have I have a six and eight year old two two little girls in education here in the UK, and you know I. Don't know if you watched them, Sir Ken Robinson's TED talk uh, about you know, do do schools kill creativity? If, if you didn't, I highly recommend it. It's one of the most watched and, and hilarious, right? But they do kill creativity, right? And and you know, Gary Hamill uh, has done a bunch of research, and he, he he lists the most the most impactful things we can hire for is initiative, creativity, and passion. But, uh, where are we teaching initiative, creativity, and passion in the school system right now? Right, we're, we're teaching. You know, I know my times tables. And we're teaching, I can memorize some stuff and pass a test, but like Apple employees didn't develop the iPhone because they could pass a test, right? They, they did it with, with a whole bunch of other capabilities that were not that. Now, yes, you need some basic knowledge and we should teach children that, but not at the expense of everything else. We, we teach them compliance way more than we teach them passion and creativity. And, and I think we, we need to rebalance that in schools. We need to rebalance that in organizations, right? But no surprise, both the school system and organizations, organizational design, both stem back to the Industrial Revolution when those things were more important than creativity and passion, right? Uh, if you work in a factory, you don't need to be creative. So, yeah, every, these things need a rethink. Um, maybe 100, 120 years on, probably time to do that, I'd say. Yeah, and yet organizations um, feel Scrum business agility or any framework or mindset needs to be implemented within three months. I mean, yeah. you've probably been there as a scrum master. Like, you get hired. Hey, we're three months down the line. Um, how do we know you're successful? Yeah. Why haven't you? Why aren't my team? Um, why aren't my team delivering? Like, I, I <laughs> teams. You're right. This epic. I mean, and it's not helped by certain consultancies and certain models that come in and they have a blueprint and it's like you know, three months will make you agile. Right, um, and we won't have to change anything for and and neither of those things are going to happen. Right, this is a lifelong journey to to improve. Like, if you look at the most effective organizations, they've evolved their management models, they've evolved their ways of working over many many years of experimentation. Right, there's no blueprint for this. It's like Netflix didn't become Netflix because someone read a book and went, oh, "Let's do that." Right, they 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 created their culture and their ways of working as did Amazon, as did Apple, as did Google, as did name your most successful company right, right here, right? And so, 
you know, to think that you can just go on a course, read a book, any book, uh, even mine, um, and then implement that in three week, in three months as a as a cookie cutter approach. Um, like you're just you're you're doomed to fail. Like no model, no framework will save you from the dysfunction in your organization. And addressing that is a multiple year journey. Um, but it's a multiple year journey. You should start now. I'd say. Do you feel this is also why? Um, these these transformations have such a high level of uh, failures. It's one of the reasons. It's one of the reasons. This um, it's like I call the the diet pill approach of we want change, but we don't want to change. Um, we just want to be able to rename some things and be and say we're successful, right? And and it's this that they want the easy route, right? They want to run the three hour marathon, but they don't want to pound the pavements for the months beforehand uh, doing the training. Um, uh, when they do, they ignore the really, really big, uh, the, the big ticket areas, and, and then they expect it to be done too quickly. They, if we just order a, a bunch of consultants, they come and spend three months with us, maybe six months with us. You know, even 12 months probably won't be enough if it's a big organization, right? If one small area, you might be able to make some progress in 12 months. But if you're if you're like the big companies, it's going to take a few years, and it's actually going to never end because there'll always be a way you can improve. So. In that sense, yeah, don't don't expect a quick journey, don't expect a short journey, and don't expect an easy journey, right? But uh, the, the um, what do they say? There's, there are two pains in life: the, the pain um, of discipline and the pain of regret. Um, and uh, uh, the pain of regret tends to weigh more. Uh, so uh, I, I think people aren't always willing to to take the uh, the pain of discipline on this, and um, it's a shame because there's no avoiding it. I completely agree with you. Hey, your book is called The Six Enablers of Business Agility. Now talk us through those six. Yeah, and uh, apologies if you can hear the rain. The heavens have opened here in North London and uh, I'm in a little uh, garden office. So I hope, hope you can still hear me all right. Um, yeah, The Six Enablers. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with, with what I believe is the most important, right? It's, it's uh, because nothing changes unless leaders change their mindset and how they show up and their, their leadership model. So we're talking about Moving away from the command and control micromanagement structure we see, um, the expert leader style, towards the more enabling leader, the intent-based leader who provides that here's what we're trying to achieve, here's why it's important, and empowers those self-managing teams to make it happen and supports that and creates the environment for that. Right? It's a very, very different leadership style um, that, uh, that, that, that we see there. And so you know, if, if we don't make that move, nothing else happens. Right? Nothing else happens. Um, uh, coupled with that is the culture, and, and you know, if you read the the State of Agile report, culture is, is almost always the number one impediment to agility. Right? If you if if you don't reinvent the company culture, uh, you're you're like it's like you're trying to grow an orchid in the desert. Right? You're, you're trying to create these ways of working in a culture that's going to consume it. So we need to move away from a culture of conformist uh, sort of uh, conformance um, and obedience and fear to one of experimentation and safety and, and, and uh, openness. Right? So the culture is vital. Team structures, I think we all know about the cross-functional self-managing teams and the networks of those teams as opposed to the, the silos that most organizations have that, that prevent that collaboration. So, that, I mean, that's a key aspect of it as well. We've talked a bit about people and engagement, right? but you know, that plays into everything else. And then governance and funding, um, the fifth one, is, you know, so many times on my courses still I get, how do we do this if we're working on a fixed scope, fixed date project? Like how do we operate with agility? Uh, how, how, do we, how can we operate with agility when we can't change the scope? 
And it's like, well, agility is that you're adapting and not changing is that you're not adapting. So um, you can decide whether these things are compatible for yourself, right? Uh, and then finally, ways of working, the least important. These are the, the processes and practices and frameworks and tools um, and patterns that you use. And it could be Scrum and it could be safe and it could be less, or it could just be something uh, that you do at the team level or continuous integration, right? But once you've created the environment for those things to work, then you can put those things in. Okay? And so those are the six areas that I think you need to tackle. There are probably a load more things as well, right? But, but they all kind of fit into one of those buckets for me. Um, and if you're addressing that, you're going to get a reasonably good holistic transformation going on. And I think you'll have a far higher chance of success than if you ignore them. Uh, sounds amazing. And I think everyone can benefit from at least reading this book. Now, one of the things um, that I like about these enablers is the funding, for instance. Um, something that I see is very much killing to innovation and doing things right now is one of the funding things. And that's what I call the rich company disease that always has this there's always a next sprint mindset. How do you feel about this? I, I didn't. I didn't catch the, uh, the 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 first part of that question. You said one one of the things that prevents them is the and then I lost you. Is the funding part like you have this this always yeah. continuous funding? Yeah. There's always money. Yeah, there's always money, right? But it's but we we invest it in in projects and we track outputs instead of investing in products and tracking outcomes. Um, and I think if you move from a project to product mentality, if you move from a output to outcome mentality, then suddenly feature A, feature B, feature C doesn't matter. You can collaborate with your customer, you can get feedback, you can work that out, right? Um, and and you, can, you can invest on a quarterly basis or whatever that is, and, and you can, can just continually deliver the highest value things um, in order to, uh, to, to to deliver value to your customer, as opposed to trying to decide up front exactly what you're delivering and then delivering and tracking that. It's like conformance to the plan. And so the funding model is key here, right? So, you know, it's, it's not that we don't have money to fund. We do. It's just that we are, we're expecting to know exactly what to deliver in each, in each round of funding via projects. And actually, if you give people more freedom, to, uh, to experiment and actually deliver something different that still gives you that value and that outcome, then then you're, you're far more likely to get that outcome because you can experiment your way towards it. That does require quite a high level of stakeholder management. They're, like, I see these teams working and dealing and um, continuously being challenged with, hey, you've got some space over here, you can do stuff over there. If you don't do this, then you still have... We, the focus seems to be on utilization. Now, how do you transition from this level of continuous utilization to, hey, we need to innovate and we have capacity for it? Yeah, and utilization comes up a lot. And what that says to me is that people are stuck in the, in the efficiency trap, right? Um, and because if, when you look at efficiency, it's how can I do with as little input as possible this known thing, right? Is how, how can I deliver this thing that is known for minimal cost, which is great if you're in manufacturing and you know your product. Thing is, our biggest problem isn't doing something for the minimum cost. Our biggest problem is what exactly do we need to deliver? Because we don't know upfront. And actually, that's why in a high uncertainty, agility comes at the expense of efficiency, right? They, those two things are intention. You, the, sometimes you want more efficiency and less agility when it's a known domain. But when it's uncertainty and high VUCA, you actually want more agility and less efficiency. Right? We have to stop worshipping at the altar of efficiency and, 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 and accept that if we want to optimize for agility, we lose some of that. 
right? And the fact that some people may not be fully utilized is okay right? um, because we're actually the biggest goal here is trying some things and delivering um, highest value as opposed to being really, really efficient at delivering the wrong thing, right? Which is actually really inefficient in the long run if you think about it because it's wasteful. Um, but that is a, a mindset that most won't learn in traditional business schools because efficiency is king. Because why? Because we come from the Henry Ford production line mentality and we haven't evolved that for the 21st century, unfortunately, yet. And I'm trying. How do we know whether we're doing the wrong thing before it's too late? By, by making experimentation cheap. <laughs> that, that's how. <laughs> the cheaper you make experimentation, the, the more experiments you can run. I mean, and that's literally Jeff Bezos has said the same thing. Um, and so by using techniques like design thinking, by using techniques like lean startup, testing business ideas early, cheaply with low fidelity prototypes to validate the need for this thing, validate the solution, get data for experimentation without spending a ton of money. And then as you lower the, the, the amount of uncertainty, you can incrementally increase your funding. So maybe you start with just a you know, few hundred pounds or euros or dollars, and then maybe you every time there's a successful experiment, you give a bit more instead of this, here's three, three million pounds, euros, dollars, go away and deliver this thing. I would love that. I like that mindset. Yeah, well, I mean, but you, but, if, but that's how lots of organizations operate right now, right? So you, again, it's this, you know, it's it's this. Let's stop making a small number of uh, of big bets and start making a, a large number of small bets, many of which will fail, but that's okay because they're cheap, right? And that's a very very different mindset. Again, we've got to get into. Hey, as a last question, how can people engage with you and your work? When is your book coming out, and where can we buy it? My, my book is out on the 1st of June, which is eight days time, which is crazy and scary. Uh, so that's happening. Uh, you can, it's available for pre-order now um, on Amazon and all of the platforms you would expect to be able to buy books. There's going to be a Kindle version and an Apple Books version. There's going to be an Audible version. And the, 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 I haven't heard it yet, but I, I know he's reading it and he, he sounds like he does great work. So um, you, you can engage with it in any of those ways. And, and, and I, I really, uh, it's been a, a labor of love. It's been in the making since about 2014. It's taken about two years to write over lockdown, but I really hope it brings people a new perspective um, and I really help it prevent some of these shallow transformations. So uh, um, check that out. Um, other than that, you can engage with me on, on social media. Uh, Kareem Harbert, my, my name is, well, there's only me that has that name. So you'll find me easily on, on Twitter uh, at Kareem Harbert and on LinkedIn and various other platforms. And, and please interact and, uh, and let me know your thoughts because uh, I'm interested to see how these things are received. Awesome, man. All the best with the launch of the book and let us know how it goes. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, you know, fingers crossed, I'm, I'm excited. So uh, you know, hopefully I'll be back someday to talk about something new. Oh, definitely, man. Take care. All right. Thank you. See you, man. Bye. I would like to thank our guest and you, the listener, for joining us again in this episode of Mastering Agility. This podcast is part of a series, so make sure to follow us on all the platforms that we provide. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Google Podcasts, you name it. Make sure to go to the website of agilitymasters.com to subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date on the latest information. Check out the show notes and how you can engage with our guests and myself to provide feedback, ask questions, um, 
more general inquiries, whatever. I would love to hear from you. Next week, we have another amazing episode lined up. So make sure to tune in again. Until then, 